You speak as someone who, like me, has been on the Edinburgh Festival stage. You've taken four shows up. I actually watched on your YouTube page the 90s one. I particularly like the opening gag uh, about the bipolar bear. That is a really old bit. That's my, That was the first show I ever wrote. I kind of put that on YouTube for sort of posterity's sake because um, it wasn't even a, like a, a finished version of it. It was a work-in-progress version of my first show, The 90s in Half an Hour, which was 2011, I think. I was very proud of it at the time. I'm not sure how much of it stands up. But it did open with a joke about a bipolar <laughs> It did open with a deliberately bad joke about, about a bipolar bear, yes. The punchline is he was bipolar. Uh, it's not very funny. The punchline really, though, is the next bit, which is I know that was a funny joke because I texted it to my dad and 10 minutes later my brother texted it to me. I love that. That's the actual punchline. That, that actually, <laughs> that's a show in itself, that gag. If you want to do the father, comedian talking about his dad, which is a genre of its own. Oh, um, it's, a, it's an Edinburgh Festival genre, especially. Indeed. I remember being up in Edinburgh in 2011, and I think I saw the poster. I don't know why I didn't get round to seeing the show, but I should have done. It's the most popular show I've ever done, I think because I got the title right, which is kind of a shame because it was very, very early on. It was fine for what I was doing. Um, you know, it was, it was good, it was funny, and some, um, a lot of the time people really went for it, but it was always rammed every single day, like crammed. You couldn't get any, anywhere near it. It's like 70, 80 people every single day, out the, like going out the door, like it was like the most successful show I've ever done um, because the 90s and half an hour is a really good title for a it's show. It's a brilliant title. Brilliant. Uh, and, and people, uh, this was a free fringe show so people could leave a thank you in the bucket and you'd shake the bucket around yeah. and you'd have enough money yeah, to buy um, you, I don't know, a place to sleep. Basically, yeah. But actually, that year I did, I, I, like, I cracked it. I did really well that year, um, money wise. Like, I, I was doing. Generally, I was doing like a couple of hundred quid per show. It was really good. Um, but uh, the thing is that subsequent shows were much better. <laughs> like I became a much better comic as time went on. Obviously, I did a show in 2014 called The Ten Best Songs of All Time. I saw I was a preview. Really proud of, and I'm still. Oh, did you? I did. Yeah, I, you I really asked me. You asked me what my favourite genre of music, and I said Americana. And instantly, you said, "Yep, yeah, men about beards singing about chopping trees down or something." The bit in that show is about how your taste in music dictates your sex life. So yeah, if you'd have gone with Americana, I, I guess I would have said that involves a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of uh, complicated fingering and men with beards. Yeah, bro. No, I just I yeah, I was I, I subsequently did shows I, I was much more proud of than that nineties one. Um, in yeah, the Temper Songs all time, I was really proud of. And I did a, a show about mental health, about my mental health history a few years later. Uh, called Mind Your Head. And those two shows kind of are sort of the two different kind of run the gamut of everything that I find funny and they're autobiographical and they're reference heavy and um, and they're personal. And I was really proud, proud of both those shows. And they both did fine. Like, they both got good reviews. They both got reasonable audiences. But I've never done anything that had the sheer, like, just the weight of numbers of people coming in, which was uh, that I had for 90s and half an hour. And I, I really wish that I had that idea when I was a slightly better comic because I would have had an extremely successful Edinburgh run that year if I had. But, well, you know, it did its job. Yeah, nostalgia is always big business. I love how you wrote a piece essentially plugging the show and you'd been phoned up by a Channel 4 journalist and they said, oh, your show chimes with the nostalgia theme. And you went, really? Who else? Bagpuss and Paul Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, the guy from Police Academy movies. Yeah, the man with many voices. Doing, uh, yeah, Michael Winslow. Yes, they'd artificially created this concept of, of there being a, a, 
a thing for nostalgia based shows at the fringe that year which was very much like uh, but it was very much a bit so i yeah i'd written a thing for the guardian that was entirely self-promotional and i'd, I'd kind of fabricated that idea that there was a, a trend for nostalgia at the show that year and yeah channel 4 news came and did a piece on it it never as far as i'm aware never actually went so, <laughs> i don't know that that footage probably still still sat somewhere um someone's got they've got an entire show an entire professionally recorded show of 90s in half an hour somewhere um but it never it never aired that was the day of the london riots yes uh so it's very possible that it got bumped for a substantially more important storyline such as live news but yes you're, the Guardian is a former employer of yours and you wrote uh, the book I, was, I think I was in a shop or possibly a second hand shop and I did go oh Mark Burrow's written a book I think I can see where you're going wrong and other advice from Guardian readers uh, which was your time um, being paid to look at the bottom half of the internet as Grace Dent so brilliantly called Below the Line Here's my segue, and there'll be a few of these. By the way, you're in the music library. Mark Burrows has got uh, a book coming out later in the year that we'll talk about, uh, which is called The London Boys, and he's currently promoting Manic Street Preachers colon album by album, which he edited 13 writers plus you, right? Yes. Yeah, because they've brought brought 14 albums. Uh, It's out on White Owl Books. You can get it at markburrows.co.uk, which is probably the, the place where you'd prefer people got it from. Oh yeah, if you get it from there, then I get all of the money uh, yep. because I just buy them. I buy them wholesale and flog them. People, people <laughs> so might not know that about books, but if you if you go through a distributor through a third party like Waterstones or Smiths or the the one that doesn't pay enough tax, um, Rainforest, they get a cut. But if you go from the merch table, people get um, the the hundred percent. Which is why someone like John Nicholson, yeah. I, when I I had my football library, I spoke to a guy called John Nicholson. He said that his book about football going wrong, bought him a house. So many people bought the book that it bought him a house, a little croft wow. in Scotland. So there's time yet, uh, and we'll be talking about Bowie and Bolan later on, but here is my, my long-awaited segue. Would Nicky Wire not be a great Guardian commentator below the line? Oh, incredibly so, yeah. He'd also be amazing on Twitter. And um, it's to my constant chagrin that he doesn't tweet. Like, there is a Manix Twitter account, and he does occasionally, re- mostly just retweets, like, praise and things like that. Uh, you know, he just, just retweets reviews. or and, and you can tell the rest of the time it's just somebody at Sony just tweeting information. But, yeah, Nicky would be hilarious. He's so sharp. He's so pithy. Um, Richie would have been, too. I would have loved to have seen Richie. Uh, Nicky recently said that, that um, one of the great tragedies was that Richie never got to be on Twitter because he would have been so good. Pithy and but, certainly politically inclined now that everyone's interested in politics. Richie exactly, Edwards, for yeah. those who don't know, Richie Edwards was the guitar player who didn't plug his guitar in. That, do you know what? That is a misconception that the band, and the, admittedly the band were very complicit in. Right. So the, the, the myth of Richie Edwards is that he didn't play the guitar. He was the guitarist in name only. Actually, his job was kind of the you know minister for propaganda for the band. He was the lyricist, one of the two lyricists. Uh, he looked amazing on stage. He was the like, guy who came up with the ideas. He did the artwork um, and was kind of you know responsible for their manifesto. And that is all true. But he did play guitar a little bit. Like he's not as bad a guitarist as his reputation said. And if you 
like there are there is live footage where you can hear him playing guitar there are bits where other people drop out and you can hear him and he seems to be playing the right notes his guitar is plugged in it, like he doesn't play on any of the records obviously but he he was good enough to scratch out some power chords live and uh, I, I'm sure it's a little bit unfair on him that people don't he gave himself that reputation and it's also it's such a good narrative and the manics are all about narratives they're all about constructing brilliant narratives that's what they kind of they excel at it's one of the things that's kind of been pegged to them they just they, they create this mythology this romance around themselves um the richie doesn't play guitar thing is part of it but it's only a half trick like, especially on the holy bible tour he tried really hard bless him on the holy bible tour <laughs> the last tour he did with them he tried really hard to play guitar properly every night and his guitar was plugged in it just wasn't very loud in the mix but yeah he wasn't good enough to play any of the records obviously i i said that half tongue-in-cheek but yes uh, richie edwards was the, <laughs> the guitarist who disappeared and is now presumed uh, do his family presume now yeah yeah He's legally presumed dead. Yeah, um, uh, he was. Uh, he was legally presumed dead. I think it was around ten years. In. And apparently, that was mostly for you know red tape reasons. It was just so that they could, like, essentially, I think it was so that his uh, his family could have access to to the um, royalties that had been accumulating, which they deserved. Um, which uh, and it was just so they could release his estate, essentially. Um, but the Manics said they had nothing to do with it. The family said it wasn't because they believed he was dead. But it was it was just like a like a, a decision that needed to be that needed to be done for boring admin reasons, essentially. Mm-hmm. And whether he is literally actually dead, well, that's anyone's guess. Either way, I hope he found the peace that he needed. And for those who have never heard Manic Street Preachers, comatose, but also as we speak on March 29th, do you know what they're doing? Do you know where they are now? Uh, I believe r- roughly right now they'll be on stage at the Birmingham NEC at a um, Ukraine fundraiser. Yep, headlined by Ed Sheeran, who I think was mm. born the year that the Manics brought out Generation Terrorists, which did not sell 16 wow. million albums. I think it went gold, so it sold, what, half a million in Britain? Yes, back in, which back in those days was these days you'd kill for, but back in those days was, you know, Generation Terrorists did okay. For those who don't know, they... The Manics' early manifesto, they said their first album would sell 60 million copies and then they split up. They, you know, they'd headline Wembley Stadium and then they split up. Yeah. Um, they wanted to burn out fast and be the most important band in the world and then set fire to themselves on top of the pops, etc., etc. Um, 35 years later, uh, <laughs> they're still around, <laughs> so that didn't happen. But Generation Terrorist did sell respectably. It did sell okay. Like It was a you know top 20 album. I think it might, might even have been a top 10 album. It, but, you know, it, did, it did respectable numbers. In fact, it did more numbers than they did again for another like, five or six years. Um, but it did not do the numbers that they had promised. But then again, they knew it never would. Again, it was a myth, it's about mythology. It's about, um, it's about romance. It's about ideas and manifestos and, and, and creating a flash. Uh, it was never, I think, anything they thought might would actually happen. I have never been able to get... I think it's Simon Price's description, and Simon has written a great book about the Mannix because he is proper Welsh, and Mannix mean a lot to him as well, and he's got the haircut to prove it. I used to see his... Uh, when he was the rock critic at The Independent, we used to get it, and I used to see his hair. I think, how? Do you know how he keeps it up? The hair? I do not know how, how Simon keeps his hair up. Uh, it'll be a very, very strong gel and a lot of hairspray, I'd imagine. But he described but, uh, the band as Slash and Axel. And I thought, yeah, 
They are Guns N' Roses. Not just that. The album came out on Columbia. They toured with Guns N' Roses. They were... Half of that album is riff-tastic. I think Slash could have killed for that motorcycle emptiness riff and indeed the You Love Us riff and indeed the riff at the beginning of Stay Beautiful, which is how you sign off your emails to this day. <laughs> yeah, Slash and Bird, I think, is really sounds like the Manix, but I think so really sounds like Guns N' Roses. Slash and Bird and Motorcycle Emptiness, I think the two that you could really be, you could really see Guns N' Roses doing. Uh, it's, it's interesting because that Guns N' Roses element of them kind of came along gradually. If you listen to their very early stuff, they don't sound like Guns N' Roses. They sound like The Clash. Like, they sound just like The Clash. That was literally all they sound like. They're very early demos, and um, the band, they kind of, when they first came out, they were punk revivalists. And Stay Beautiful sounds like a Clash song. You Love Us kind of has a Clashy vibe in, in the version they released on Heavenly. Um, and the, the kind of cock rock thing gets dialed up a bit as you gradually go along. And then you get when they start, when they finally sign their, their big record deal, they sign to Columbia, um, and then that's when it's kind of there. That's when suddenly they're not like an indie enemy band, um, although the enemy always loved them. But they, they musically they, they kind of they became a hard rock band. And for the next like five years, they were a, they were a hard rock band more than a punk band. And then they kind of gradually went back to with the Holy Bible kind to that kind of post punk glitchy kind of tight sounding compressed punk but for like the first two albums they're hard rock records they're, yeah it's Guns N' Roses it's it's you know they, like there are, there are bits in it that could be Def Leppard and yeah. I might be thrown out of the fan club for that but they're really but they really are they, you know it's done it's done very very well sounds amazing James is such an incredible guitarist and Steve Brown who produced uh, Generation Terrorist did a really good job of making them sound like the cult, making them sound like Guns N' Roses, and you can actually, you can absolutely hear it. And, and never mind the bollocks to an extent as well. Yeah, I uh, think, which is a rock and roll record. Quite right. Well, and also all about posing and artifice. But uh, Steve Brown, who actually produced She Sells Sanctuary by the Cult, also produced Wham. And I didn't know that. Obviously, Columbia must get a return on the investment. I wonder what Richie Edwards would have thought about the term return on investment. I think Richie, like the rest of the Manics, was um, quite savvy about that sort of thing. I mean, Nicky is very, very savvy about money. He knows exactly, like, he's, he's really obsessed with record, with sales figures and chart positions and things like that. He gets, like, that's, he's really, like, I think it's partly the sports fan in him. He's really into stats. And I don't, I don't think Richie was especially different. I don't know that for sure. This is just a hunch. But, um, again, they, they they played a game. The romance and the and the mythology and everything. It was a game. It was a, it was it was a, a manifesto. It was a, a story they were telling, and they told it very very well. And so it's like the relationship with early Bowie is actually quite well. Not early Bowie, early Ziggy, is um, is I think quite pronounced because they, they created a, this version of themselves, the story that they presented to people. Some of the Richie's early quotes support that I think, but they weren't. Like they, he talks about how many records they wanted to sell. They talked about wanting to be on Enemy, uh, sorry, wanting to be in um, Kerrang, um, rather than just be in the music magazine because that was a, because people actually bought the records, listened to the, would read it. They wanting to be on Top of the Pops, wanting to be on MTV. Not they wanted to be mainstream. They wanted to be huge. So that whole kind of business end of the record of the music industry is part and parcel with that. So I think if pushed. Like, they were clever, and Richie was extremely clever. Like, he knew 
that sort of, about that sort of stuff, and he would have understood about that sort of stuff. So, not that I think that sounds cynical because it wasn't cynical because I think they, they bought into that myth very much themselves. But I don't think he would be turning his nose up at the residuals. No, um, especially coming from the kind of working class. It was it a mining town where they came from. We're not going to go too much into the, the yeah. manics because it's all in this wonderful book, Manic Street Preachers album by album but yeah they are you see actually say in this uh show about the 90s that sold out the edinburgh fringe uh working class intellectualism libraries gave us power and that's yeah they're, they're from a, a, a solidly working class town um richie actually slightly richie was slightly more middle class than the rest of them but not but only a little bit like they're only like to to a given mm-hmm. value of middle class he just you know they had a slightly slightly bigger house and a slightly nicer car but Essentially, you know, there that was, it was a mining town. It was a mining town without a mine by that point yeah. as well. You know, the mines had closed. There was a pot, a pot noodle factory was the um, was the main source of work in Blackwood, South Wales. So yeah, it was a very kind of I wouldn't say rough town. Although I do know a friend of mine that did uh, who is gender fluid and went on stage in Blackwood um, to do stand up, and they did not enjoy it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I can imagine what it must have been like mm. for the Manics dressing up in their mum's blouses and going out on the rough streets of South Wales. But, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was, it was a typical Welsh little town. Um, no pretensions. Mm. I completely forgot about that. Nicky White actually did wear a dress in public, but he was six foot three or six foot four, so no one would want to mess with him. <laughs> yeah. But chutzpah, not chutzpah, yeah. kind of just bolshiness. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he did once apparently get the get the shit kicked out of him for wearing a Kylie Minogue t-shirt. I don't know if that's true or not, but he always claimed it was true. Throughout the, this is the music library, by the way. And Mark Burrows, you do get your music library card, and you can choose from any kind of figure: Bowie, Bolan, James Dean, Bradfield, Andrew O'Neill, who is uh, in and band with you and may well be the friend that you mentioned about a minute ago. That is the French I mentioned, yeah. yes. We must cage them and also sit down Lars. I love sit down Lars. <laughs> I'm going to try and talk to him about that. I just sent him a message saying, I'm talking to Mark. Why am I not talking to you? Has he read Manic Street Preachers album by album? Andrew O'Neill. Uh, they. For Sorry. Uh, a very important distinction, Andrew is they. Correct. Um, they, uh, no, they have not. <laughs> Nor have they read. Uh, nor have they read the Magic of Terry Pratchett. Nor have they read. Um, I think I can see where you're going wrong. Um, Friends, they, eh? They said they're very excited. They said they're very excited about my David Bowie, Mark Bowen book because I've finally written about something they're interested. In. <laughs> Good. So, so you got an audience. Uh, I have read their book. Yeah, exactly. An audience of at least one, but they're a very significant one. Well. We are going to stick their book, History of... Is it called A History of Heavy Metal? Oh, as I call it, Sit Down Lars. Because that is every time I see Lars Ulrich or Metallica written down, Sit Down Lars. Uh, And I'll hopefully talk to Andrew O'Neill about that. It's an incredible book. I was so proud of it. And a little bit annoyed because I was like, well, writing about music is my thing. Yeah, well, hey. And yeah, you were so moved that you actually left music and wrote about the fantasy author... Terry Pratchett, which you must be incredibly proud of. And you were essentially given carte blanche to write or curate, if, if you like that word or not, I apologise, uh, this book, Manic Street Preachers, album by album. So let's give a rundown of who you picked to work on this book with you. The general premise of the book, 
as you say, yeah, I, I, I did this book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett, which did pretty well, and I was really proud of. It was probably my favourite author. But the publisher was basically, after that, trusted me. <laughs> they kind of went, what do you want to do next? And um, I've got loads of ideas, but I had this idea for kind of a stopgap between proper books, essentially, between proper biographies, where I thought, you know, this would be a nice, easy thing to do. I will edit a book about the Manics. I will write, uh, I will... It's a good way of telling their story. We'll do a chapter on every single album. I'll get a different writer to write each chapter. And then I'll do the linking material and I'll write a chapter. And that'll be an easy book. And then, you know, that's, boom, I've got another book out. And that, and that, so that was, that was the idea. There was a little bit of mission creep in it. In the, um, well, first of all, the person who was doing This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours dropped out uh, at the last minute. And I didn't have anyone to replace them with, so I wrote it, <laughs> which is why I wrote two. I write two of the essays in the book. I, I was originally just doing rewind the film, uh, which is a, a later Manix record. And suddenly I realised I had to do this is my truth. And then I realised that everything I kind of wanted to say about rewind the film, I also kind of wanted to say about this is my truth. So I kind of changed tack and I wrote a short story for rewind the film, or a fictional short story. Um, that kind of engages with the themes of the album. And then I, all of my kind of thoughts about it, I poured into this my truth piece. So, that, so I was one of them. But what happened was there was a bit of mission creep because I, was, I, I thought it's going to be easy. I do a little bit of linking material between each chapter just to, just to kind of set the scene. So it feels like you're, you're getting the whole story. And then you get a different angle on, on the band in each chapter. So I'm like, I'll do a timeline, you know, when, when they formed the important moments, the important gigs, when the single came out, whatever. I got really carried away doing that timeline. And I essentially wrote a full biography in bullet points. So um, actually, I wrote about th- the book that I was only supposed to be editing and writing a single chapter of. I wrote a third of. You wouldn't <laughs> let I it lie. I, <laughs> I just wouldn't let it lie. No. Uh, and I went deep. You know, I didn't do any interviews for it, but I spent an awful lot of time reading old old music old music press interviews, and, and I had like four different biographies of the Manics and uh, and loads and loads of press. And you know, I just tried to piece together the story chronologically through all these different sources. And of course, all the sources contradict each other. So you you go, okay. Simon's book says this, and this other book says a completely different thing. What, how do I work out the, the truth? Um, trying to uh, going back to the music press, trying to find radio clips and all that kind of thing. So it's actually ended up being a really kind of heavily researched biography that was meant to be a really quick job, and it ended up taking up my life. And actually, I was trying to write another book at the same time, so uh, which is why the London Boys, my next actual book, which should have been out by now, really. Um, isn't out until later this year. So, yeah, I tried to find really wide selection of writers to cover the story. So every single album, I wanted an essay for every single album, and I was really keen that I wanted the essays to be very different because the Manics are a band that people are totally obsessed with. I know I am. Um, and you can be very music journalistly about it. And I kind of thought it'd be very easy to get a bunch of white male music journalists between 35 and 50 um, who would all write fairly music magazine kind of uncut mojo Q magazine style pieces about these albums and I thought well, it needs some of that definitely needs some of that because that's that's important that, that's that, that's rigorous and we have those so I approached a few proper music journalists I know so uh, Andre who used to work for, for Drowning Sound uh, with me 
Uh, he's been the, the album's editor at Drowning Sound. He did Know Your Enemy. My friend Rianne, who's an academic, Rianne Jones, uh, who wrote this brilliant academic treatise on 90s feminism in pop music. Called Under My Thumb. Uh, Clampdown. It's called Clampdown for you, but she's really good. So I got her to do Generation Terrorists, and I put out a few of the, you know, put out a few of their uh, feelers, and I got some really some. I basically just went down to said anyone want to pitch me, you know, on Twitter. I said, does anyone want to pitch me? Do you have any ideas? Which albums would you like to do? Uh, and then I also was keen that I wanted to get some personal takes, some people who were actually going to write about a time in their life um, and how that impacts how they felt about the record. So less about, you know, who produced it and what B-sides it had and the drum sound and um, the chart positions and the guitar solos and more about how it marked a moment in time. And um, Laura Kelly's piece on Gold Against the Soul, I think, does that beautifully. And that, that one, I think, is really, really good. Um, I was really pleased with that. This talks about living in Belfast uh, during the Troubles, being a Mannix fan um, in the in, in the mid-90s. Emma O'Brien's piece on the Holy Bible, she's young. She's essentially too young for, to remember the Holy Bible. She got came to the Mannix, like, in the 2000s. But um, she spent some time in... Uh, hospital for an eating disorder and she she writes about how which is Bridgie Edwards had as well and she writes about her connection to the album she's quite scathing about it as well she's quite scathing about their approach to that subject and I thought that was a really great take a friend of mine Tracy who uh, runs Safe Gigs for Women which is a charity that oh, promotes safety for women uh, at gigs um, and she's great uh, she wrote this really great piece for um, about Postcards from a young man. That was, the, that was a really kind of this marks a specific point in my life. It was about the death of my father, and, and that happened around the time that album came out. So I wanted that kind of feel to it as well. Um, and then I got there's also more kind of political kind of. I, get, I mean, I call them all essays, but there are some are more essays than others. There are some are more articles. The one I wrote was not, not this is my truth. Very much an article. Um, you know, it's very much that Q magazine kind of thing. Whereas Claire Biddles, who wrote the piece on futurology um, and looks at the, she used it as a springboard to look at the women in Manic songs and the, the band's relationship to feminism. Mm. And that's a very, very like deep piece. It's like really intellectually, really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've missed loads of people out, but because um, I haven't got a copy of the book in front of me. <laughs> that's all right. You can but get one it's... from markburrows.co.uk for, is it 16 pounds? I believe, I, I think I'd say number 16 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds right. I mean, that's a recommended retail price, I think. Although books, they're sneaky publishers. Like, my, they set the price to 20 pounds, even though no one, no one will spend 20 pounds on a hardback book, uh, knowing that they that no one will sell it for that, because then they'll say that it's a discounted price. Sneaky. Yeah. Uh, the entire industry does that. It's very, it's very sneaky. But um, yeah, something like that. But yeah, the idea was to get this re- complete range of opinion uh, and views, and then to have them arranged in a, in a way so that you weren't getting the same thing loads. And I also wanted to make sure that you know there was a good mix of, of genders, of, um, of, of political approaches. You know, Phoenix, who writes about everything, must go is is not binary. Um, so I was really keen to get them to write something and they wrote a really good piece that works really well actually with Emma's Holy Bible piece but about fan culture and about what it was like to be into the band in the internet era and um, loads of message boards and fanzines and all that sort of thing so yeah I, yeah, I was really pre- pleased 
with the range of stuff I got. A lot of them complement each other in opposition, which is what I was after. Right? So you've got this, the style shifts and changes and you have different ways of interacting with it because the Manics are a band that people feel a very personal attachment to. So I wanted to kind of explore that personal attachment in different ways. Yeah, you call them a mythology um, band. Yeah, they are. They're a mythology band. Um, and there are very few of those. And I'm a sucker for literally all of them. Uh, I love bands that create this idea of who they are. They don't just, you know, go out in a T-shirt and say, uh, you know, and say, well, tell us about your new album. Well, you know, we like it, so we hope other people will like it too. Um, that kind of thing. The thing about you know, Gramsci they, they... that you need to know, that's, that's what <laughs> Nicky Wyatt Buy our album. It's about exactly. Gramsci's theories on the self or whatever. He's brilliant. What yeah, a brilliant exactly. character. And he could be nothing. He'd be a librarian or a, like a university lecturer, but he's chosen to stand gaily, G-A-I-L-Y, like happily bouncing up and down on his bass. And it's remarkable. And this band, Manic Street Preachers, who are the subjects of this book, played the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury. They've supported Bon Jovi, The Killers. They played a set of mostly hits at Nebworth in 1996, having just released Everything Must Go, produced by uh, Mike Hedges, who produced The Lars, I think, Mike Hedges, and is a Beautiful South, did the Beautiful South records. Um, yes, he did. And, it, uh, and Dave Erringer as well. Dave Erringer produced a lot of stuff, but kind of co-produced a lot, uh, turned up and produced a few songs on. He was a, he'd worked with the Manics for years. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, Nebworth is a really interesting point because Nebworth, you know, Nebworth is a cultural touchstone for the mid-90s. Um, and that was suddenly the kind of, I, I, of all the bands, Oasis were kind of, a, you know, Oasis were era-defining in a way that very few other bands are, whether you like them or not. Like if you were around at the time, Oasis were like a dominant force in pop culture. Um, they were like a, you know, they were a, a brick in the face of pop culture. Like you couldn't avoid them, um, and they would have knocked a tooth out. And the Manics at that point, I mean, that album you know, it attracted the same audience. The old Manics audience was there, but we're talking about them as a cop rock band, as a hard rock band earlier. Like Everything Must Go is not a work by a hard rock band. You know, it's an it's it's an indie rock band. It's a it sounds like. It, you know, it's got a lot in common with What's the Story Morning Glory. It's a classic songwriting record. It's a jukebox record. And um, I really like that they managed to stake that point in the 90s and they, they were part of that. And that wave of British bands that kind of came sort of the tail end of Britpop that kind of ended up these days end up on compilation CDs that you buy your dad for Father's Day. Yeah because he's the only person you know who stars a CD player. <laughs> but, you know, they were part of that lineage. Uh, there were a couple of records that defined that era in that way. And there was one story in Glory, and then there was Everything Must Go, and then there was Urban Hymns. There were every nine records that everybody owned. The Mannix, is, the, the Mannix were a lot cleverer than those other bands, um, and they were doing something lyrically more interesting. And musically, I think, really exciting. But um, they, were, they were in that same vein. And if you compare that with the band that released... Slash and Burn and Faster. Gone Against a Soul, especially yeah. their second album, and then and then Faster, which is a post-punk, which is like a, a it sounds like a different band, and I love that about them because they continue to sound like a different band on pretty much every record. Like I think they've kind of settled a bit now, but for a, for a good twenty years, pretty much from nineteen ninety four through to about two thousand and eighteen, every Manix album was a reaction to the previous Manix album. 
and I love that about them. Like they made, they became a different type of band. That's there's very few bands that can do that. I think maybe the Fall, who are another John Peel favourite. There seem to be no other band. I love what you said. You you appeared on the Manic Street Speakers podcast, which is very good. Good way in to the um, to the oeuvre of the Manic the Manic Street Preachers or drop the the just Manic Street Preachers. Uh, it, it's just Manic Street Preachers, although people would usually say the Manics. The man, correct, yeah. Um, but, yeah. yeah. And you, you brilliantly said, nobody is writing books about ocean colour scene or stereophonics. And that absolutely gets to the heart of this band, who, um, that album, Everything Must Go, it's all vowels, it's all magical choruses, although it's also got Small Black Flowers. Mm. Yeah. It's small, small Black Flowers is, you know, it's a melancholy song. Um, it's a beautiful song, but it's not a... You know, it's not a jagged, complicated song. It, it doesn't stand out. It's a Richie Edwards lyric, and it's got that kind of uncompromising brutality to its to it, content-wise. You know, here, chewing your tail is joy. They drag sticks along your walls, harvest your ovaries, dead mothers. Like, it's brutally... You could have turned that into a Holy Bible kind of yeah. spat out those lyrics and made it rich and vicious, but the way they put it together, the way James sings it... It's this acoustic kind of, um, it's an acoustic guitar and a harp, and it sounds like ethereal. It sounds completely magical, and I don't think it stands out on that record. I think actually it really, really works on that record. It's like a, you know, the quiet acoustic moment. And it became the quiet acoustic moment in the Manic set for years. Like, still is, it's still, you know, rotated around in that midpoint section they always do, where, James, where the rest of the band go up and James does a two-song solo. And Small Bell Flowers is usually one of them, or it's mm. often one of them. So even though it had, like, a lyric that, a lyric that was uncompromising, you know, Oasis weren't writing songs about animals in cages uh, and animal abuse that was also a thinly veiled metaphor for, for, the, for the author. Well, you, you, it, you wrote a piece about uh, Holy Bible and uh, you, you said there are songs about death, rape, anorexia, butchery and the Holocaust. So Sally can wait. It's, it's a completely different <laughs> type of um, band of what yeah. they're doing. Um, and that they, are, they remain national treasures. And indeed tonight, as we... Uh, chat. They're playing Birmingham to raise money for the DEC um, uh, Disaster Emergency Committee Fund for Ukraine. They played Cuba. There was a documentary. I watched the clip where they they played. Oh, I can't remember which song they played. It may have been "You Love Us" when they came on and said, "We never do encores, but we like you, so we're going to do You Love Us." And um, it's true. They never do encores. They finish with "Design for Life" and they hop off the stage. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're playing tonight. But I also know what they're playing. <laughs> yeah, correct. If they don't play Design for Life, no one will. No one will. They'll go. Who's who's that band of middle-aged-looking Welsh blokes who are looking forward to Wales playing Scotland or Ukraine in the the? Yeah, they'll go to Qatar. Exactly. They will go. Uh, mm-hmm. Nicky, he's probably already got his they ticket. Will. They will. I mean, they followed. The, they followed um, the Tigers around Australia on, on tour. <laughs> the, uh, not Tigers, so the Lions. Um, yeah. But rugby like okay. and called the tour the send away the, the send away the, the, the send away the lions tour um, but it was just an excuse to go to Wales to, go, to watch a load of rugby they toured they toured Japan during the rugby world cup just really really clever like oh oh the rugby world cup's in Japan 
Should we do a Should we do a tour of Japan? They, they okay. couldn't do that if they were on Heavenly. They are still signed to. Well, it seems to be Sony. Uh, Columbia released some of their albums. Epic. Everything must go was on Epic Records. So the amount of money that was funded in that, and you hear the money, the strings on everything must go. Mm. Uh, could they replicate that live around that time and around uh, uh, the, the This Is My well, Truth they, era, they, which is probably when they were making the most money? They rarely, they rarely did. They rarely played with a full orchestra. They do, they, they're all with a, even with a string section. They have a few times, mm. usually for TV appearances, but mostly it's keyboards. It's just an all backing tapes. Um, being on a major label is still a source, source of pride for them. Uh, I think they, I think Nikki especially takes great fondness for being a big band, for being on a major label, for being taken seriously. And you know they're a heritage band now, essentially. And like I said, I know that I know what they'll play tonight they'll, because they've always played great hit sets. They've always they've done that ever since they had a hit. They will always play it. They're about they're the most reliable festival band you'll ever see because you all the ones you know they'll do. But the, I imagine the sets tonight will be. Not in this order, but they'll play Design for Life. They'll play If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next, which I think will have some you know, meaning because it's about going to war. It's about um, it, it's about living your values. It's because it's all about the Spanish Civil War. It's about fighting fascists. So I can't imagine they won't play it. I suspect they would probably chuck in one of, one of the singles from the new album as well because, you know, you've got to find the bone, and you? <laughs> Secret of Mist is a great pop song. Great melody. He can still write melodies. I was going to yeah. say, there's a division of labour, as you'd expect, in, in a working-class Welsh band where Nicky now does the lyrics and Sean and uh, James, who are cousins, write the music. Although, does Nicky do music th- these days? Well, it's, it's changed a lot. That, that was always the traditional division of labour in the Manics, is that Richie and Nicky wrote the words, James and Sean wrote the music, and that was it. Um, that, has, that has changed over the years. These days... Um, not so much with the new album, but usually you will get one song on per album that has a Nicky Y lead vocal. Uh, you will get one song per album that James wrote the words to. He's actually a really good lyricist. Uh, and if you go back to starting with Ocean Spray on Know Your Enemy, but actually he's, some of his songs are really good. Mm-hmm. First Jet to Leave Moscow on Futurology, Anthems for a Lost Cause on Rewind the Film. Um, you know, he's a, actually a really good lyricist. Uh, and Nicky writes whole songs now. He actually will go to the band with not just the words, but the words and the melody and the chords. Yeah, I thought um, so. If you get the they, they, they always put out demo discs with their um, albums. You always get out a, a disc of demos. And the demo, and so often with the demo, you'll get one song or you like. And that, that kind of started around uh, Send Away the Tigers, which is their sort of their, their comeback. We are a big band. The, the, band, the album that kind of cemented them as a legacy band, really. Um, Nicky wrote Your Love Alone Is Not Enough in its entirety, uh, which was you know, one of their big, their last really great big single. And it was a huge hit for them. And yeah, like Nicky wrote, the, the demo is just Nicky singing that with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, he's, those, those divisions have blurred over the years. Mm-hmm. As has the musicianship. The musicianship has changed. Nicky's a really good bass player. He never used to be. If you, there's a video of him at, at Reading in 92. And God, he's dreadful. He's really bad. He's playing the wrong notes. He's spending far more time posing than he was playing. playing. But now he's a really good bass player. He's got a really good sense of groove and um, really inventive melodic parts. Um, they've kind of morphed into this 
musically really interesting band. And if you go back to their early records, you know, it was three chords and the truth. And then it was two riffs, three chords, a guitar solo and the truth. Nowadays, there is a lot going on with Manic's records. They're a sonically really interesting band. And I, I really love that about them. I think they've settled now on top of it. I think the last three albums, there is a sonic relationship between the three of them. And you can kind of see here that that's what they sound like now, which is kind of influenced by kind of... Uh, Simple Minds, you can hear the early mm. Simple Minds in there and um, that kind of big sound, kind of chiming, sort of European sounding uh, synthesizers and classic pop, but with these big kind of indie rock elements. Uh, the punk element is almost entirely gone these days, but I think that's what the band in their 50s sounds like. And I'm very pleased for them because, you know, they've earned it. They've earned the right to do whatever they want. Are they touring this year? Uh Festival spots and supports with bigger bands, I think. I don't think there's a headline tour announced. They're doing a bunch of festivals. I think they're, they're opening for Green Day and the Killers in stadiums, which are, I think, were tours that were booked before the pandemic. I dare say there'll be a headline tour at the back end of the year. But um, There's also talk of a re-release of Know Your Enemy, which is one of their most misunderstood albums um, which their, the 2000, their 2001 record the one they went to Cuba with that was quite a compromised album in the end and um, Nicky's talked about kind of reconstructing the original vision for it this was the, the album where I, I was listening to the top 40 every week and they put out Found That Soul was one and they released two singles on the same day so it was a it was so a dozen roses so jump so yeah. why, so sad, thank you. Yeah. And they, they just had, I also remember uh, listening to the chart and taping it off the radio, The Masses Against the Classes, which was a number one because it was deleted on the day of release. Do you still own that CD? Uh, I do, I own it on CD and I own it on 10 inch. I was, that was my next question. But yeah, of yeah, course, um, naturally, yeah, I, naturally 10 inch. And I, I, was, I was at the Millennium Stadium gig on... 99 into 2000 I was I was there and I went out and bought the single the next day because they played it that night and then the single came out I don't know whatever it was a couple of days later mm-hmm. and then it, became, it was the first number one of the money that's right the first new number one of the year 2000 the New Your Enemy era is really interesting because there's two schools of thought about them releasing those two singles at the same time um because they were massive they were huge at that point you, like it's, you can't really these days, you, you forget how big they were. They were one of the big bands. You know, Blur, Oasis, Radiohead, The Verve, Manic Street Preachers. They were bands that could headline Glastonbury. You know, there were, there were very few of them talked about. British bands that could headline Glastonbury. And the Manics were one of them. And coming off This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, they're, like, their biggest, uh, one of their biggest selling records. And, you know, it'd been one of those albums of the year. Swept the board, all the awards. Everyone owned it, that kind of thing. It was fairly obvious that they got the timing right. Whatever they released next, whatever the single would was it would have been a number one single but they released two singles and not only that they released two weird singles they released one that was very punky and deliberately uncommercial although in retrospect is actually the more commercial of the two i think and um andre argues this in the book which i really like in this article um and the other one they released is so why so sad which is kind of a beach boysy kind of bright sounding pop yeah, record pop song, yeah. yeah on the surface sounds like a, a, a kind of obvious choice for a, for a single but actually it's quite a weird song that Manix put out. Now, either of them would probably have been number one, like based on their fan. They had enough. They had enough fans at that time who would have bought anything to get the songs to number one. But they released two singles on the same day. Now, did they do that because they thought they were so big they could get number one and number two, and that would be an amazing achievement? 
that is entirely possible. Possibly an actor who risked because the single didn't chart that well. They went both went top ten, but not. Or did they do it deliberately to not have a number one? Being the biggest band in the country didn't really suit them. Like, it was a lot of pressure. They didn't get to be the weird band that they'd always been. Well, they'd also they'd also like, seen what Radiohead did with Kid A Amnesiac, and they lost a lot of fans on that. So maybe they wanted to do something similar. Just to pull their own Kid A. And I think they kind of wanted a bit of that. They kind of wanted to remove themselves from that and give themselves a blank slate to do whatever they wanted and to be whatever kind of band they wanted and to continue to reinvent themselves, which is what they did. I think had they wanted to be continue to be the biggest band in the country, to, to still play on that playing field that had Oasis and The Verve and Travis by that point and later Coldplay, they, they would have had to have released an extremely commercial sounding record and they deliberately didn't they released an album that has a very peculiar sonic identity that goes all over the place that has like complete like bangers like proper punk bangers and then it also has like a disco song Mr. Open Disco Dancer and kind of and pop songs and dirges and, and a really really great takedown of Royal Correspondence which is one of my favourites uh, so good Royal Correspondent, which every time a, a major Royal Family story breaks or every time Nicholas Witchell appears anywhere as he um, will tonight because royal we're talking on the day of the memorial service to Prince Philip exactly uh, and the lyric Royal Correspondent Sad and Lonely just pops into my head <laughs> and the BBC your life will be complete dream of the Daily Mail it is your holy grail like oh what a song but yeah they um it was it was an act of sabotage. It was either it was an act of hubris or it was an act of sabotage. I think it was an act of sabotage. I think it, they I think they were distancing themselves from the pressures of being that kind of band. And frankly, every one of my favourite bands has done that. Like if you look at Nirvana with in intro, intro yeah. you know, they opening with this discordant slash of guitar in the line "Teenage Angst paid off." I'm now on board. No, yeah, Magic Pumpkins, huge big hit with Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. The next album, Adore, it's like hushed, silent, dark, like minimalist electronica and acoustic guitars. It wasn't. It doesn't sound like a hit record, um, although I think they still believed it would be. Blur, um, you know, five years of knees up, have a banana, like bother boot, kind of, kind of. Uh, hey, lads, lads, lads. Music, yeah. Musical, yeah, and then. You know, they, and then they come out with a song that sounds like pavement covering the Beatles. They allowed themselves to be able to, from then, do whatever they wanted to do next. But that song, sorry, that same. song, pavement covering the Beatles, that was Beetlebum, got to number one. Yeah, and it was number one. What's brilliant about that is that um, I don't know if they were trying to self-destruct or they're just following their instincts. But um, either way, it was the bit like, I mean, song two was on that album. That was the biggest single they ever had. Yeah, one of my favourite favourite anecdotes about that actually um, which is in Stuart McConing's biography of Blur uh, is the record label sent some people down to the studio to hear what they were doing with that with that album and they played them two singles two songs um, that they've been working on that I'm very proud of and the label went oh these are good yeah but you need to write some singles and those songs were Beatlebum and Song 2 no one knows which anything which is like yeah exactly I have a self-imposed limit of 78 minutes because that, as you know, is the length of Ode to uh, the Ninth Symphony, the Choral Symphony by Beethoven, and thus <laughs> the limit to what you can put on a compact disc. And also, I think Indeed. the viewers, the listeners' patience would be 
tried. Although I would love to talk to you for hours, especially about Pratchett, one of whose books I've read. Uh, re- only So I read the biography first and then go and catch up with what I missed. What a charming national treasure he is. And uh, two late national treasures are the topic of your book, The London Boys, uh, The Teenage Dreams of David Bowie and Mark Bolan. Uh, but before I, I uh, go into that, just a quick question. The Manic Street Preachers have only written one love song. What's it called? Uh, further Away. Thank you very much. I, I didn't know that, and now I know <laughs> it. And another easy question, Mark Borrows. Are the Manics an 80s band or a 90s band? I mean, if you had to pin them down... They're a 90s band because that's when the, the biggest hits were. That's, yep. what the, that's what the association is. So, I mean, I don't think they count as an 80s band. They were formed in 85, but um, they didn't do very much of note in the 80s. No, but you, my argument, and I, I admit that you have edited a book all about Manic Street Preachers called Album by Album, which is available at markburrows.co.uk. But they seem to be an act who... Because the music press loved them, the enemy gave Barbara Ellen and the enemy gave uh, the Generation Terrorist record ten out of ten. Um, they they seem to have the kind of eighties feel, but in a nineties world. And because they studied bands who were big in the pre digital era, like Bowie and T Rex, uh, they knew what it took to succeed on their terms. And not that they killed Ziggy. Or, or killed, or what? Hang on, it was Steve Peregrine, so it was more or less kind of left because it got too glammy, too glittery. But they are aware of their own mythology, like the bands in the 80s. I think my point is that since the music press fell out of favour, you can't really have a mythology band. Bands become mythologised in different ways now. Uh, but yeah, you're right, the bands have mythologised themselves. The music press was the way you did it because that's the only way you had to find out about bands. Um, and they could create this kind of romanticism around them and you know I, I guess that starts with the Velvet Underground I think and yes. Bowie especially less so T-Rex I think Mark kind of was himself to like the nth degree I don't think he was trying to create a myth out of whole cloth in the way that um, Bowie did with Ziggy and in the way the Mannix did of kind of going this is what I'm going to be like this is what I want people to perceive me as I think he just kind of wanted to look fabulous and be glitzy I don't think he was as contrived whereas the, the great mythology bands and you go to the 80s you're looking at the Smiths and Suede in the 90s Nirvana to an extent they created a mythology around them the Pumpkins certainly did I think Nine Inch Nails definitely did like loads of these bands, Libertines in the, in the 2000s I think were a mythology band they created a myth and a romance around them they had a specific manifesto um, which I don't think Bowen did but I think you're honestly with that with the Manics in the, in the 80s because thinking about if you think about all of the big influences on the Manics. You've got Guns N' Roses, C86, kind of tweaker mid-80s sound, and early Primal Scream and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you've got Sarah Records. Uh, you've got McCarthy. Uh, you've got Public Enemy, who they all went for, for sort of politicism. Like, there were a heady mix of all of those, but then also the Clash and the Pistols, which are definitively late 70s. But then again, I think the Manics were always plain postmodernism, which is an excuse to be anything yeah. essentially so you could certainly argue they were an 80s influence band but they're a product of the 80s and by definition a product of the 70s as well and I don't think they would have like I don't think they, they consciously 
nicks from Ziggy from Ziggy Stardust and Mark Bowen. Uh, I think they were nicking from other sources, but I think the the DNA of that also came from Ziggy Stardust and also came from that era. Bonin less so. I don't think there's a huge bow there's a huge T Rex influence on the Mannix. Musically in places, but I think but I think it's an osmosis thing. I think it's a it's a it's a these begat these, which begat these, which begat these. You know, Mark Bowen begat the, the New York Dolls and Morrissey. But I think uh, they kind of uh, James E. Bradfield's musical influence is kind of you know Motown and the Rolling Stones, and then punk. It kind of skips the glam stuff, which is reflected in what American punk was when America got punk in about September 1991. Mm. Uh, I read Andy Bolland's great <laughs> tour diary of, of, was it New Genius or Captain America were on tour with Nirvana as Teen Spirit was breaking and they, you couldn't stop it. It was a juggernaut, whereas the Manic seems to have tried... Well, I suppose they embraced the juggernaut and Bowie embraced the juggernaut because he wanted to be a star and tried everything over a period of, I think, six or seven years. Boland tried to be a star. He was signed to John Peel's label for a bit and then saw where the wind was blowing. And if, Did he invent Glitter Rock? Was it his invention? Well, that, well, that is a controversial question. And it's actually the subject of my next book, what book? Because <laughs> um, um, my next book, The London Boys, is about the 60s. It's about Mark Boland and David Bowie. As, it's, a, it's a way of exploring post-war Britain. And and the development of rock, of the rock and pop kind of industry through the eyes of these two guys desperately trying to make it um, and trying to make it because a lot of people don't realise that Mark Bowen and David Bowie they matched each other beat for beat uh, through the sixties tried everything you know they were they went through they they were like um, mods they were beat group blues aficionados they were acoustified hippies and before then they were glam rock superstars they were folk rockers you know they tried everything so you've got this period all the way through the 60s and trying and both of them trying out different ways of becoming famous essentially as to who invented glitter rock there are two schools i reckon there's two schools of thought on that one is that david bowie invented glitter rock by Forming his band The Hype in 1970. Now, The Hype, uh, which is a kind of proto version of The Spiders from Mars, it's Bowie, um, Mick Ron- it's Bowie and Mick Ronson, um, then Tony Visconti on bass, and John Cambridge on drums, um, which was the kind of protean version of The Spiders from Mars. Woody Woodmansey replaces John-, John Cambridge, eventually, Trevor Boulder replaces Tony Visconti. And you get, uh, but um, they played their early gigs in costumes they decided to go the other way because at the time this is the, the era of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and bands take themselves very seriously and long hair and denim and um, long guitar solos and trench coats and essentially t-shirts and you know it wasn't very glamorous so Bowie and Angie Bowie his wife was incremental who is not incremental, who is um, instrumental. absolutely like essential. Instrumental, thank you. Came with the idea of doing the opposite. You know, like, you flashy costumes. So Bowie wears this rain, drapes himself in this rainbow coloured outfit, calls himself Rainbow Man. They dressed Visconti up as a superhero, and called him Hype Man. Um, they dress they dress Ronson as a gangster, and mm. they put John Cambridge in a cowboy hat. Um, and like, uh, so they come on stage looking like like proper lollies uh, in doing costumey rock in a way uh, uh, 
at a time when no one else was. And they did it like two or three times, but the first time was supporting Genesis at the Roundhouse. And there's a picture, a famous picture, where you can see leaning on the barrier of the stage, leaning on the on the on, leaning on the stage, looking over, wearing a child's Roman centurion breastplate because bless him, he wanted to join in, watching the band is Mark Bowman. And a lot of people say that that is the night the glam rock was invented. That is the night the theatrical glam rock was invented. I'm not so sure about that because that band was not successful. Those gigs were not massively successful. The underground weren't particularly successful. The Velvet Underground weren't... uh, Well, the Velvet Underground punched above their weight. Like, they were successful in, in a way. You know, they weren't nobodies. Commercially successful, not especially. They got more so as they went along, but but no, yeah, not really. But they had clout, you know. It wasn't they weren't nobody. That's one element of glam rock being invented. The other element of glam rock being invented is T Rex going on top of the pops to do Hot Love, their second single. Um, I think it was a second appearance on top of the pops performing Hot Love. I would have chopped where... a minute and a half off that song. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> That doesn't need quite so much la 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 at no. the end, does it? But Sorry, it but go ahead. Number one it was a huge song, but but, but T Rex's manager's wife, a guy called Tony Secunda, I can't remember his wife's name off the top of my head. Um, she dabbed glitter, glittery makeup. She was a fashionista. She always looked great. She dabbed glittery makeup on Mark Bowman's face and sent him on to top of the pops. And that is seen as the birth of glam rock. And I think that is a far far more concrete but you could say you could argue that Boland having been at the hype show absorbed some of that idea of some of those ideas of theatrical rock but it was Boland on top of the pops that really kicks the ball into you know starts the ball rolling yeah and then mm-hmm. it, yeah and after that you got the you got the sweet you got you got wizard you got Slade. it all happens and that Bowie going on doing the stummer, which must be 50 years old very soon. I'm just going to look up. July 6th. July 6th is the anniversary. Will you have finished uh, the London Boys by then? Have you got a transmission date that you have, or a TX date that you have to uh, no. write by? So the London Boys is, is finished. Right. I mean, it's being edited at the moment. Um, it's, so I, at some point in the next... I imagine in the next couple of weeks I will receive the book back from my editor and I'll have to go through and, and argue about why they've taken all my jokes out and <laughs> try to put more <laughs> back in and, and that'll be the usual, you know, the editing process. Um, actually, that said, my publisher is very light touch and actually they tend to let me get away with, with a lot more than I think a lot of people would. Um, the book is out in late September, early October. I mean, to all intents and purposes, it's done. There's not that much work left to do in it. I handed it in in the end of January. Yeah. That that book takes us from from January 1947 when Bowie is born. The original plan was to write a book that, that took us from January 1947, the birth of David Bowie, to September 1977, the, the death, death of Mark Bowie, telling the story through that. What actually happened, and this is very similar to what happened with the Manic's book, is um, I realised that it was too much story. There was too much to do to tell it properly. And uh, I ended up chopping the book at 1970. So The London Boys is specifically called, The London Boys is called, with a subtitle, The Teenage Dreams of, Bo- of Mark Bowen and David Bowie. Uh, it is a book about, although the 60s teenage dreams of Mark Bowen and David Bowie, it's a book specifically about the 1960s. And to an extent, the 50s and the 40s, but mostly about the 60s. And I cut it just before 
Bolan goes into the studio to record Rider White Swap, which is the song that pushes him overground. So you get it. I leave the story at a point where Bowie has had a hit with Space Oddity, but he's now floundering because that was a one hit wonder and no one bought the album and no one bought the follow up single. And Bolan is about to become a megastar and I, I chop it there. Uh, the next book, which I haven't started writing yet, but uh, is very much assembled in my head, uh, will pick up at that point. So the next, so that the first one is about is a social history of, of the UK, of London, especially, and I know the music industry, and you know the changes in sex and sexuality and drugs and fashion and art, and how we navigate from the gloom of post-war austerity to the bright technicolor of the 60s revolution and that's through the eyes of those of, of these two guys of these two young nobodies who are desperate for a hit that's mm-hmm. book one book two which isn't really book two it's just another book is about different approaches to art because it's about and decline and rise and fall because you have two glam rock superstars level pegging for a while and then one becomes David Bowie essentially and the other one doesn't and it's about those two different approaches to art and also it's about the impact of fame Um, and um, it's a really neat three act structure exactly yes Mm. it's a very neat three act structure because you've got the superstar era for both of them Bowman gets famous first Bowie catches him up they're both superstars then you've got this middle era where they both go where it goes wrong Bowie becomes a bigger star tries loads of different things one of which being an awful lot of cocaine mm-hmm. and occultism and basically, basically you have this dark period where he's really unhappy and at the same time Bolan has stopped being famous stopped having hits uh, he's also discovered cocaine but also brandy and chicken and um, he is really unhappy. So you've got a middle section of them being unhappy in different ways at different points. And then you've got the third act, which is them kind of becoming happy with who they are and reaching an equilibrium. Fathers as well. And it with them. And both becoming fathers. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Although actually Bowie becomes a father in 1971, I think. I think Duncan Jones was born in 71. Whereas Roland Bowen isn't born until 75. Yeah. Right at the end, they play a show together, they appear on TV performing together on Mark's TV show Bowie debuts Heroes that night um, they have a, they played a disastrous duet that, where Mark falls off the stage and it all falls apart but it's very funny and very entertaining and you know they're comfortable with each other and they're friends and a week later Mark Bowling dies that's book two and book two will be out 23 or 24 23 hopefully uh, I'm hoping to have but one out have it out exactly a year after book one. I mean, I, I call them book one and book two. They they should work completely independently of each other. They will just also be a really nice, they'll really nicely run together. It reminds me of Peter Guralnik's pair of books about Elvis or Clinton Halen's in the middle of writing either a trilogy or a duology about Bob Dylan. So I'm comparing you with some quite big writers, but... This book I'm should quite be happy right. To take that. Yeah, do. Um, I'd, yeah. I'd also want to compare you with Nicoletta Wilde, but I don't think she'll appreciate the comparison. <laughs> um, that's my wife. Uh, yeah. well, I mean, we, we are very different people. Uh, she's, I mean, she's she's actually a really great music critic, but primarily she's a she's a novelist and a poet. I would like um, to just say that her her first poetry collection, "The Direction of Greater Courage," who are playing uh, they're playing next week. I think they're playing on Wednesday. <laughs> um, 
Uh, you can get that through her website, I think. Yeah, uh, uk or greatercourage.com, I think. Oh. Uh, yeah, she wrote a poetry collection. It's fantastic. Uh, there's also a sort of companion hospital diary that she wrote around the time the time the book was, she got her publishing girl, which is one of the most incredible things I've ever read. And I'm beyond proud of her. Uh, so I, I heartily recommend at Nicoletta Wilde on Twitter. Follow her. Um, but yeah, she's she's really good. That's how I found it. And when did you get married? Was it well before pandemic? Uh, no, it was just before the pandemic. Um, we got uh, we actually we actually got a civil partnership. Uh, it was uh, New Year's Eve two thousand and no, hang on, what's the year? Nineteen into New Year's 20. Eve twenty. So New Year's Eve twenty nineteen. So yeah, we were which is the first legal day that mixed gender yes. first day that mixed gender couples could get uh, could get civil partnerships. That's right. So we had yeah that day, and then um, three months later the pandemic kicked in. And you're still married today. Uh, I have a final quiz question, Mark Burrows, and thank you so much for dropping into the music library. Only the second guest. I'm trying to talk to 78 people, one of whom will be the great Andrew O'Neill sit-down Lars. What links David Bowie, Mark Bolan and Nicky Wire? The clue is in the uh, question. Oh, absolutely. Hang on. I was just, just going to say exceptional eyeliner, but... Um, Correct, but it's not on the Bowie. card. Again, the clue's in the question. What links David Bowie, Mark Bolan and Nicky Wire? They're all stage names. You They're see? I knew you'd get that. Yep, David Jones, Mark Ferry, and is it Nicky, Nicky Jones? Nick Jones, uh, no, Mark Feld. Feld. David Jones, Mark Feld, and Nick Jones, yeah. Yes. Uh, Nicholas Allen Jones. Jolly good. Whereas Mark Burroughs remains your name, and it remains your byline. Mark Burroughs, yes, it's my name. Uh, it is spelled on my birth certificate as it's spelled on my bylines. Uh, I have changed nothing. It is just who I am. Yeah, I, I get accused often of changing the spelling of my surname to be of my first name to be pretentious. Somebody once I wrote, I wrote an article once about uh, some job I had in a warehouse when I was uh, seventeen, and somebody went, "He never worked in a warehouse." Mark, Mark with a C. That means either he's changed his name, he's, he's changed it from K to C, in which case pretentious, or uh, it's short for Marcus, in which case posh. And I was like. No, I was named after Mark Boland. Like, <laughs> I was named after a pop star. You know, like, just there's nothing less pretentious than being named after a pop star. It's like being called Britney. Like, it's I, I really resent it when people accuse me of accuse me of changing my name to Samuel Posh. No, and I hope over the last uh, hour and eighteen minutes maximum, as the format dictates, because you've got to have a format, Mark. Uh, and the format is have a format. one thing I'm looking for. Uh, in this 78 chat, these 78 chats in the music library, is possible books that haven't been written. Uh, Ian Winwood and I came up with a few. Uh, he's written a brilliant one called Bodies, which I'm sure you'll enjoy, uh, all about how music makes people ill. That's not the enjoyable bit. The enjoyable bit is how he makes it so readable. It's a, it's on Faber and Faber. Uh, but I think uh, Manic Street Preachers album by album uh, and London Boys, two books with your name on it, your actual name, um, My actual name are worth reading as well. Uh, final question: What books do you want to read this year that are you are looking forward to reading? Oh, do you know? Let's see. Problem is, I, I'm so deep in research that I haven't had a chance to really look at. I don't really look at what's coming out. Okay, no, the official biography of Terry Pratchett is coming out by Rob Wilkins, um, and I'm really, really interested to read that because. Partly, obviously, that's written by somebody who had proper access to Terry Pratchett because <laughs> it's, it's his best friend and his, his assistant. Um, and it's going to be interesting to compare that with the one I wrote. And hopefully they'll work as a kind of 
you know, they'll work together rather than in opposition to each other. Um, so I'm fascinated to read that. I really want to read Paul McCartney's book that came out before Christmas, and that is an expensive book, so I haven't quite yet. Moon Age Daydream, David Bowie's book about Ziggy Stardust, the biography of Ziggy Stardust, which uh, is with photos by Mick Rock, is being republished. The late Mick Rock. That hasn't been available for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the late David Bowie, that's the thing about weird thing about it. Um, but I, I suspect his light's coming out now. Yeah, that's not been available for a while. And I read an excerpt in Uncut this week, and I was reading it because that book came out a fair while ago. And I was reading the excerpt and thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to reading this. And then there's a reference to eBay in it. And I thought, oh, I think so. But I think Bowie revised the text. Mm. So I'm very interested in that. So that that should be fascinating. So, yeah, those are the, those are the two that I'm uh, most excited about. Mm, um, and also whatever it, whatever it is I write next. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you have to read that. I, I, re- I reviewed, I've yeah. written this football book and I said on Goodreads, I enjoyed this book because I wrote it. And it's amazing seeing on Goodreads my book, a book that I've written about the Youth Cup, which is a football competition that you won't be interested in because you can't talk to your parents about football, apparently. Um, no, no, I can't. <laughs> no. So when do you start work on, on this 70s book? After Easter, May, uh, June? I... I am planning on starting in a couple of weeks. Like I, I gave myself a rough date of April the first to start, but um, just just because the, the process of finishing the last one was so exhausting, I got it. Like I, I wrote forty five thousand words between Christmas Eve and January the twenty first. Jesus. Um, so it's yeah, it's a lot. And so I, I gave myself a bit of headspace. So I'm so I'm I, work begins in earnest. I think probably next week. Hurrah! Uh, and then we'll. We'll go from there. So, uh, and then we'll, you know, you know, write the books like it's uh, agony. <laughs> no, it's just pans. Just make, make yourself cups of tea. Uh, give yourself a break, and yeah. remember, stay beautiful. Excellent, lovely, well done. <laughs> <laughs>